Praise God. Shall we pray just for a moment? Father, we are so grateful to be in your presence this morning. And Lord, we acknowledge that you are here. Lord, would you help us to be present as you are? And Lord, once again, we want to invite you. Come and open our eyes this morning so that we might see you. Open our ears so that we might hear you. Open our hearts so that we might receive from you. What an extraordinary, holy, and magnificent God you are. Lead us into your truth. We pray this in the matchless and glorious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. This morning, for a few moments, I want to speak to you about the struggle of our time. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel a little bit overwhelmed. I've lived in this great country for almost 12 years now. Actually, in fact, in just a couple of weeks. And one of the most exciting things for me was to watch all of your election cycles. I do want to tell you, it is extraordinary that we survived this as Christians. Yes. And one of the most interesting things for me was to watch your television news channels. Now, let me just go ahead and say that. You have too many channels. Can we go ahead and say that? Yes. And I would, and you know, it's interesting in the service that we have, we would have all these news channels next to one another. And it was interesting because the president would say one thing and you could go through the channels and everybody had a different opinion. And you had to stop for a moment and say, but what is really true? It took me the better part of, I want to say, 12 years to realize the news is never going to tell you what is true. And so a while back, I decided I'm going to stop watching news. There's just too much information right now. So it's interesting to me, philosophers often call this age an age of post-modernity. And I'm going to tell you, I do not believe in that term whatsoever. I think rather we are in an age of confusion. We have too much information. And one of the biggest things that we struggle with is, of course, very importantly, how do we make sense of this all? So I've entitled this message, An Ancient Faith for the Future of the Church. An Ancient Faith for the Future of the Church. Do we have the slides available today? There we go. Yes. I want to just tell you for a moment, you always have to make good friends with sound people. Yes. (laughs) And so may I just go ahead and say, whoever's managing that today, you are my favorite person uh, for the next hour. And then I'm going to choose someone else at that time. And so I think one of the questions that we need to ask in the midst of this time, how do we indeed have a faith that is vibrant, that's going to overcome this world? It's a good question that we need to ask. And folks, I want to tell you that, yes, our television television news channels are full of confusion. But I have to tell you, sometimes I watch Christian television and it's no better. I don't know about you, but sometimes I struggle to sleep at night. And ever so often, I go on those television Christian news channels. And I I, I want to tell you that it's sometimes like watching the sci-fi channel. It's just crazy stuff out there. 
And you have to ask this question, what indeed is it that God wants us to know and to believe that can overcome this world? I want to start today with an older quotation. You know me already. And a while back, I read an interesting preface to a book that was written 800 years ago. And I want to say to you what was extraordinary about this preface is that I thought this describes our time. And this, I think, is one of the struggles that we face often. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I feel so overwhelmed and I think we are the first people to have ever faced this particular problem. The truth, of course, is no. Every generation has had to face this evil age. And listen, in this preface, it's a preface that was written in support of a wonderful, wonderful Christian leader 800 years ago, a lady by the name of Claire Vassisi. And in this preface to her particular life, listen to what is written. We're not entirely sure who wrote this. We, we, wrote, we think a guy called Thomas of Selena might have written it, but it's not important for you to know. But listen to what he writes. He says, the aging world was almost oppressed by the weight of years. The vision of faith faltering in the darkness, the footing of morals slipping away, the strength of virile deeds waning. Yes, indeed, the dregs of the times were following those of ice. And I thought, wow, wow, that's exactly what we go through right now. But then he goes on and he says, what is it that God was doing? Go to that next slide. He says, but when God, I love that phrase. I'm going to have a book one day that's just going to be called When God. When God steps in. And Thomas says, when God, the lover of humanity, raising from the treasures of his kindness, a newness of consecrated ones. I love that phrase. And what is it Thomas was saying? Thomas says that 800 years ago, there was an extraordinary revival at that time. He says, how did God counter the problems of this age? He said, he raised the people that were consecrated to him. A newness of people. And church, may I say this morning, we are right there now. We are in desperate need of this new, of a new revival of people that are fully consecrated to him. And he goes in, he says, a newness of consecrated ones. And he provided through them both a support of the faith and a discipline for renewing morals. And then he goes on and he says, these modern leaders. Yes, church, 800 years ago. These modern leaders and their sincere followers were lights of the world. Leaders of the way. Teachers of life. In them, the brightness of noonday dawned on a world at evening so that one who walks in the, dark, in the darkness might see the light. And I remember reading this and I just said, yes, God, this is what we need right now. A number of years ago, I used to take students on a study abroad trip to Rome and we would look at the first 300 years of Christianity in Rome. It's one of my favorite things in the world to do. Because here was the struggle that the early church faced. The early church often, folks, would be faced with an extraordinary world that was not open or friendly to them. And I structured 
the, uh, this, this particular tour in such a way that the first two or three days, I would show these students all the glories of ancient Rome. And then finally, the students would stop and say, now, where, where are the treasures of the early church? And then finally, I would take them to the oldest standing foundation of a church in Rome. The early church did not build buildings. The early church did not build monuments. But what we do have are inscriptions that they made on the side of their homes and sometimes just in public places. And I take them to a place where all these inscriptions have been gathered. In a place called Trastevere, which is not important for you to remember. But I want to show you two pictures in particular. These are the oldest inscriptions that we have of the church. Here's a man that inscribed himself on the side of a building with his hands raised up in the air. Go with me to that next slide. The next one is my favorite one of all time. This is one of the earliest inscriptions that we have of Christians in Rome. And what does it say? It says, Maximinus, this is his name. And he says, I am in. And then you see that beautiful pyro. And what it, of course, means is the first two letters of the name Christ. And here's a man that said, the thing that I want to do is that I want to let everybody know publicly that I am in Christ. Now, folks, the early Christians did not have power. They didn't have privilege. They didn't have money. But the one thing they did have is that they had a faith that was vibrant. And within less than 300 years, they would overcome the darkest, most evil empire the world has ever seen. And Rome itself would become Christian. Church, this is the question for this morning. What does it mean to have a faith that really will overcome this world? And what does that faith look like? Jesus was asked the same question. In the time that Jesus walked the earth, the scribes and the Pharisees came to him and asked him very specific questions. And one of the questions that they asked him is, what is the most important thing? And I want to stop for a moment and say to you, this is the question I have. Here's my problem. I am, I, am, I am paid to study the Bible, which is a problem. Because let me say to you folks, I read too much. Not only do I read too much, but there's too much to be read. This is part of the problem. If you come into my office, there are these piles and piles and piles and piles of books. And, and there's not a day that goes past that not another book arrives that I have to read. And I've gotten to the place that I try to read a book a day. Just to keep up. And here's the problem. The more you read, the more confused you become. Because <laughs> there are a billion different ideas. And sometimes I want to have this answer. What is the most important thing? What is the one thing that I must hold on to? Jesus was asked this question. What's the most important thing? And in the context of the scribe asked this question. What is the most important thing? He was asking him, we have so many competing faiths, so many competing voices, so much confusion. What is the one thing that we must hold on to? Jesus answered by quoting something from the book of Deuteronomy. Somewhat of an extraordinary summary of the Torah. It's called the Shema. 
And he has the Shema. What does it mean? Jesus, this is the most important thing that you have to learn. He says, the Shema says, hear, O Israel. By the way, the word Shema is Hebrew, which means to hear. He says, hear, O Israel. The Lord your God is one God. I want you to hear this. The Lord your God is one God. Later, the Apostle Paul would be asked that same question. What is the most important thing that you have to know? Go with me to that next slide, please. And the Apostle Paul responds in the letter to the Ephesians, and he, in essence, unpacks that same thing that Jesus said. And in this context, again, he's writing to a church that is facing an evil age, a time of great confusion, a time of great competing voices. And Paul writes, he says, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It is in essence, once again, a summary of that Shema. So a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to meet a hero of mine. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, where you get a little bit awestruck. And somebody that has had an extraordinary influence on me and my own theological development for years and years is a man called Tom Wright. He is a professor in New Testament, uh, <clears throat> English chap. And, and I had an opportunity to go and spend a week or so in St. Andrews University in Scotland. It's a little bit of an older university. It was started in 1324. That's a while back, right? 1324. And, and, and Tom was teaching there. And I forgot it. I actually forgot that he taught there. I was there to deliver a paper, and I was speaking at the university. And the next thing, I saw him in the audience while I was speaking, which is a bit overwhelming, right? At that moment in time, he just said, let's take a deep breath right now, yes. And right at the end, I walked up to him, and I said, Professor Wright, I have a question to ask of you. And I know at that point in time, he was going to bring out a monumental book on exactly this question. What does it mean to have a faith that will overcome the world? And I remember, as typically as an Englishman would be, he said to me, he asked me another question. He said, he said are you a good walker? And I said, oh, Professor Wright, I'm an extraordinary walker. And he says, once a day, he says, I take a walk. He says, you're welcome to join me tomorrow for my walk. 20 minutes. And here's my question. I said, could you summarize for me the faith of the early Christians and make it easier to understand? And on that walk, folks, and go to that next slide, he gave me three words. He says, the early Christians really just have three things that they believed. Now, again, this is academic language. I'm going to pack it for you in a moment. I know it's okay. I know. I know. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for giving me that permission. I am so grateful. Yes. He said the early Christians really just three things that they had to believe in. Folks, this morning I'm going to say to you, this is what we have to hold on to. He said they spoke about monotheism, election, and eschatology. Go with me to the next side. I'm going to pack it. Monotheism is ultimately about the truth that there's one God. Just stay with me here for a moment. Election, that he has one people that he's chosen. And thirdly, eschatology, that there's one future. 
Jesus, in the midst of competing voices, said, there's one thing you have to remember. Yeah, oh Israel, the Lord your God is one God. He loves you and he's got a future for you. The apostle Paul said it in the same way. He said, one God, one faith, one church, one baptism. Today and next week, I'm going to speak about the shape of the gospel for you as a way to renew our morals, as a way to rethink who it is that we are as Christians. But this morning, I'm going to just start with that very first one. One God. What does that indeed mean? The Apostle Paul is somebody that had a deep understanding of this truth. And the Apostle Paul writes the following about his own understanding of the gospel. And in the letter to the Galatians, he writes, he says, listen, folks, the message that I have is not my own message. So here's the problem that we face today. There's too many variations of the gospel that we preach today. We've gotten to the place, folks, that we are preaching more ourselves than the gospel. I train ministers for a living. And you know what's the biggest struggle our students face? That they have to have a special message. A special message. It got so ridiculous. I remember I had one man, young man, that said to me, My call, he says, is to preach on the identity of the four horsemen. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. People sometimes ask me this question. What is your mission? What is your call? And folks, let me quickly tell you, I, I, sometimes I'm a little bit mischievous. I say, I have no call. I have no mission. The only call that I have is the call of Jesus to follow him. The only ministry that I have is to follow his ministry. My only mission is to partake in his mission, not mine, his. And for too long, we've had these individualized ministries where people preach their own message and we follow these people. But listen to what Paul says. Paul understood the need for a central message, the need for one voice in the midst of confusion. And he writes in Galatians, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. You might not know this about me, but the last thing I ever wanted to do was to be a preacher. Actual fact, when I became a Christian, this is what I prayed. I said, God, I'll go anywhere and I'll do anything but. <laughs> May I just say, it's not wise to bargain with God. You'll never, you'll never ever win, right? And I remember I said this, but two things I will not do. I will not speak in front of people. I will not pray in front of people. Those are the only two things I do. <laughs> only two things he's ever asked me to do, nothing else. And the reason why I couldn't do it is that I'm a terrible salesperson. I had two sales jobs in my life. I was fired from both. Everybody should be fired once. Don't you think? It's a really good experience. And may I just say, the second sales job, I worked for my mother and she fired me. The first job was terrible, sales, sales job, because I didn't believe in the product. And so this is what happened when people came out and said, oh, don't buy this. Go next door, much better. Until my boss overheard me and he says, you go next door, right? <laughs> You're done. 
The second problem, when I worked for my mom, I believed too much in the product and gave it away. It took me six months to repay what I gave away. But here's the extraordinary truth. When you preach the gospel, it's not your own message. You don't have to sell it. You don't even have to have the power. The power belongs to him. And this is what he says is, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But listen to this. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. What does Paul mean? What does he mean by this? And folks, this morning for a few moments, I want to highlight, go me to that next slide. And just as one aspect, that first part of the message, if the gospel is indeed about three great truths, one God, one people, one future, this morning I want to speak just for a few moments on that first part. The Apostle Paul, on this message that there is one God, it's extraordinary. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul would retell his conversion story four times. And in all of those retellings, folks, he always focuses on two core truths. And two core truths, folks, that we have to deeply understand. Firstly, that God is indeed the Lord. And secondly, that he is sovereign. So let me start with that first aspect, the fact that he is Lord. Listen to how the Apostle Paul retells the story. And it's extraordinary. If you look at the book of Acts and you see how often Paul speaks about his conversion, it's interesting every time he goes deeper. He reflects upon it and he finds a new truth within it. And he tells the story. He's on his way to Damascus. And I remember how, how Luke writes, and, and, and this is what Luke says. And Luke says, he was still full of threats and murder against God's people. This is what he happens. And he says, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And I want you to see this. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? True Christianity starts with a confrontation with God. But here's the problem today. Today we plead with people to follow Jesus. We beg them. We persuade them. We try every trick in the book. Come to Jesus. If you come to Jesus, your life will be better. We try to get people to church. Can I just go ahead? I'm just going to go ahead and say this. Folks, in our area, Hampton Roads, this is the most difficult place to start a church. Statistically, we know this from the research. Here's the problem. We have more churches than cows. <laughs> True. In the area that I stay in, there's one road, and, and, and Pastor Brent will know this, Kempsville Road, and I've counted the amount of churches that are in that road. I've preached in about 80% of those churches. So I know what's going on. And here it's quite interesting. There's a tiny little change that is made to a service, and you lose 400 people overnight. 
The one church decided they are now, from now on for the children, not going to serve biscuits and juice, just juice. They lost 40 families overnight. They moved to the next church because there would be biscuits. There you go. We changed uh, uh, maybe the time of a service 15 minutes and people will leave. And it tells me here, there's not been a real confrontation with the Lordship of Christ yet. I like Charles Finney, an evangelist. Didn't always agree with his message. But boy, his method was interesting. And Charles Finney would do this as an evangelist. He would have these large services. And then he would invite people up to receive Jesus. And they would come. And then he would ask them questions. And then he would not pray for them. And he says, I want you to go back home. I want you to think about what's been said. And if you're serious, come back tomorrow and then I might pray for you. Jesus said very similar things. Jesus called people forward. And and, and then when they wanted to come, he would say, okay, if you want to follow me, sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. Come back. Tell me tomorrow about that. And then let's see. This is the one core truth that we've lost in the church. Folks, why should we serve God? Because he's God. Why should we follow him? Because he's Lord. Now, here's the difficulty in America. That word Lord has lost meaning for us. It's a royal title. And if there's one thing that I've learned, you Americans, you don't like kings or queens. You throw the tea in the river right there. You don't like it one bit, right? Everybody's equal. That's a a good thing. It's not a bad thing necessarily. But the problem is, folks, there's no longer respect for authority. I have to tell you, I've lived here under three administrations now. When I arrived, President Bush was leading the country. I was so shocked to see what people would say about him on television. And then there was President Obama, and I was shocked about what people would say on television against this man. And now with President Trump, I think, it's, I think it's the worst ever. What people would say, there's no respect. No respect for the office. There's no respect for authority and leadership. And, and here's the problem. It bleeds into our Christianity, folks. What we desperately need to get back to is again this idea that God is Lord. I have a very strange imagination. And I sometimes wonder what it will be like to arrive in heaven. And church, I want to say to you, I don't think the shock of heaven will be the gold streets. Or the big mansions. You know, there are those people that say they died and have gone to heaven and they come back and tell stories. And when I listen to those stories, I want to be honest... Uh, I'm skeptical because of the stuff that they speak about. I think the big shock of heaven is when you arrive and you see God. This is where my imagination gets strange. I think you see God and you die. And I think he resurrects you once again. (laughs) And I think you see him again and you just die once again. And this goes on for a while. And then he whispers in your ear, don't open your eyes too big, just slightly small. I I think that's going to be the biggest shock. Folks, I think when we recognize how large God is and who God is, it gets worse for me. Then I think you're going to turn to your neighbor once you realize 
You might slap them. And I don't know if slapping is allowed in heaven. And you might slap them and say, did you know how large God is? And you did not tell me. You allowed me to live my life the way that I did. This is what happens with Paul. Paul experiences God, folks, and within less than 20 seconds, this is what he says. What do you want me to do? Lord. He recognized. See, I think there are a lot of fallacies within the church. And one of the greatest fallacies is the fallacy of choice. We think we have choices in Christianity. Let me help you here. You did have a choice. The last choice was when you accept Jesus as Lord. No more choices after that. What do you want me to do? That's the only question. From now on, it's just, yes, sir. Yes, yes, whatever you want me to do. Yes, sir, this is it. He is Lord. It's a tremendous importance that we need to recover this. What shall I do, Lord? Listen to what R.C. Sproul writes. It's one of my favorite statements. He says, the clearest sensation that a human being has when he experiences the holy is an overpowering and overwhelming sense of his creatureliness, the fact that he is a creature. That is when we are in the presence of God, we are humbled. We become aware of the fact that we've been created. That is the opposite of Satan's original temptation. You shall be as God's. Folks, things work best when God's God and humans are humans. When we submit to his power. Secondly, what Paul meant by the fact that there's one God, of course, always, always as a trinity. Not only, folks, that that he recognized that, that Jesus is Lord, but that he is sovereign. What does that mean? He can do with us whatever he wants. The fact that we are still in that place that we think that we can uh, uh, tell God what to do. Listen to what happens in Acts 26. He retells the story once again. It's the fourth retelling in Acts. This is Paul. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up to your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. It's always interesting to me how often we think about the future and we want to be in control of this. Let me ask you this question. How many, how many of you have prayed about the future and heard nothing? Have you noticed the more you pray, the less you hear about the future? May I help you here? I want to tell you just one of God's secrets. Not two, but just one. God does not delight in telling us what's coming. He'll give us glimpses here and there. What does God want us to do? Trust. Think about it just for a moment. Jesus walks past Peter and says, Peter, follow me. Here's the problem. He doesn't tell Peter where he's going. He doesn't. And Peter doesn't ask that question either. Have you noticed how God called Abraham? You had a wonderful sermon that I listened to last week on the hospitality of Abraham, right? Have you noticed how God called Abraham? God said to Abraham, leave your country and go to the country of which I shall still tell you. Have you imagined? Where do you go? God says, go and somewhere along the line I'll tell you where to go. But just go. Go now. 
Do I go left? Do I go right? Do I go east? Do I go to west? He says, no, no, just start walking. Somewhere along the line, I will tell you where you're supposed to go. Just go. And this happens all throughout the life of Abraham. What does this mean? Not only is he Lord, but he is sovereign. He can make whatever decision he wants. And, and folks, think about the extraordinary thing that's happening here. God is taking Paul, Saul here, who is the enemy of the early church. And he says, I'm going to make you the leader of the early church. Have you noticed that almost nobody in the early church complained about it? By the way, be careful how you treat your enemies. That enemy may become your pastor. You never know. Right? God's sovereign. That's one of the reasons why we forgive absolutely everyone. And folks, once we recognize the fact that he is sovereign, we submit to him. One last quotation here. Archie Sproul, again in that glorious book, The Holiness of God, writes, he says, sin is cosmic treason. Folks, the moment that you recognize who God is, sin will cease. This is why quality decisions will not help you not to sin. How many of you have made quality decisions not to ever do that again? Have you prayed those prayers? Oh, God, if you get me out of this, I will never, ever, 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 ever do that again. Until tomorrow. <laughs> then you do it once again, again. Don't put up your hand, but I wonder if there's anybody here that has been caught in cycles of sin. Often when I do counseling, this is what I find. People, people get caught up in cycles of sin, doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. And often what they do, they create some kind of program to get out of it. And they make promises to God. Oh, from tomorrow morning onward, I, every morning I'm going to get up at five and I'm going to pray for an hour and I'm not going to watch television and I'm not going to speak to that person and, 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 and I will do this and that and the following. Those promises never last. Folks, there's only one answer to sin. It's the vision of God. There's only one answer to sin. You have to see God for who he is. And the moment that you see him and you realize, not only is he Lord, but he is sovereign, everything changes. And this is what R.C. Sproul says. He says, sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. And once you understand that, we are changed. So folks, what is the kind of faith that we need to indeed challenge this evil age that we live in? It starts with the knowledge that there is just one God. He is Lord and He is sovereign. And this morning I want to encourage you once again. It doesn't matter how long you've served God. We need a fresh revelation of who He is. On a daily basis. And when we see his holiness and his purity. And his greatness. There's an orientation. There's an alignment that takes place within us. And my prayer is that this summer will be such a time of realignment for us. I've been serving God for 35 years now. And folks, I'm, I'm embarrassed to tell you that. I look back at journals that I had 35 years ago, and I'm still struggling with similar things. But now, of course, I'm realizing that 35 years is not very long at all. And what is it that we need? 
we need that Damascus Road experience that Paul had. Some of us are on wrong horses, going to the wrong place at the wrong time, with the wrong people, for the wrong reason. And we need that encounter with God and be thrown off our horses and see him for who he is. He is Lord and he is sovereign. Let us pray. Father, this morning, we are overwhelmed with your presence in this place. And God, we give you thanks that in every generation, you have raised up consecrated Christians that you use to renew the morals of the faith. And Lord, this morning, I pray this is us, Father. Lord, we want to have this faith that will overcome the world. And Father, so we pray, would you come in the name of your Son through the power of your Spirit. And would you confront us with your presence once again. Lord, may your presence be so real and so true in our lives that every sin will disappear. That every wrong conception we have of you would dissipate. Jesus, come and be Lord in our lives. You are Lord and you are sovereign. Come and take your rightful place. This we pray in the holy and matchless name of Christ. Amen.